Good evening. I'm Paul Drienzo with this news roundup. President Joe Biden bypassed opposition in Congress to make an emergency sale of $106 million worth of tank ammunition to Israel on Saturday. The sale of nearly 14,000 rounds of tank shells was announced a day after the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, standing alone against the measure with wide international support. In a rare step, Secretary of State Antony Blinken determined that an emergency exists in the national interest, requiring the immediate sale, bypassing congressional review. Unable to leave Gaza, more than two million Palestinians faced more bombardment Saturday, even in areas that Israel had described as safe zones. In New York City, the U.S. veto was met by thousands of protesters who took to the streets on Friday and again on Saturday. Protesters crossed the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan, where speakers demanded a free Palestine. Israel does not have a right to exist, and we have a right to say that. And that is not anti-Semitism. Jewish people can exist in Palestine as they always have. Before 1948, Jews, Muslims, Christians, all Palestinians. A WBAI fan carrying an Irish flag joined the marchers as they approached City Hall. I was wondering why you had an Irish flag here today. Ireland stands with the people of Palestine and for freedom and liberty for all people of the earth. Why is that? Because the British suck. It was the same thing, right? Both countries. Right, right. All right very good. Yeah, one people. Led by flags, many of the marchers were women. Allies joined along the march route and accused Israel and the United States of genocide in Gaza. In one of the most crucial diplomatic confrontations in memory, the United States on Friday vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Thirteen members voted in favor of the ceasefire resolution, London abstained, and the United States voted no. The extraordinary special session was held a day after Secretary General Antonio Guterres invoked Article 99, claiming war in Gaza was threatening the security of the world. We are at the breaking point. There is a high risk of the total collapse of the humanitarian support system in Gaza, which would have devastating consequences. We anticipate that it would result in a complete breakdown of public order and increased pressure for mass displacement into Egypt. I fear the consequences could be devastating for the security of the entire region. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reiterated the United States is committed to protecting civilians in Gaza as Israel widens its military operations after a brief humanitarian ceasefire. We cannot have uh, an Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. Uh, we cannot have uh, forced displacement of Palestinians uh, from Gaza. Uh, we cannot have the territory of Gaza uh, diminished uh, in any way. And of course, we can't have uh, Gaza used as a platform, uh, as it was, for the most heinous acts of terrorism. We want to see Palestinian responsibility, Palestinian control for Gaza uh, and for the West Bank. And the Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations is Riyad Mansour.
This is Netanyahu's war. This is the war of the extremist coalition in power in Israel. No one should get sucked into it any further. Its aim is not security. Its aim is to prevent forever any prospect of Palestinian independence and of peace. Israel's ambassador to the world body, Gilad Erdogan, blamed Hamas for the fighting. Regional stability and the security of both Israelis and Gazans can only be achieved once Hamas is eliminated, not one minute before. After members spoke, the council voted in the late afternoon. The draft resolution has not been approved due to the veto of a permanent member of the Security Council. Afterwards, several Security Council members had their say. The United Arab Emirates is deeply disappointed with the outcome of today's vote. Regrettably, and in the face of untold misery, this Council is unable to demand a humanitarian ceasefire. Despite a rushed process and lack of appropriate consultation by the resolution's authors, the United States engaged in good faith on this text. Yet this Council and many of its members have been conspicuously silent in response to reports that Hamas committed acts of sexual and gender-based violence on October 7. The Secretary General has raised the alarm, and he was right. We plead for a new, immediate and lasting humanitarian truce. We cannot vote in favor of a resolution which does not condemn the atrocities Hamas committed. That's why we abstained on this resolution. China, all this shows once again what double standard is. Although the draft resolution has been vetoed, the international community's strong cause for ceasefire and ending the fighting, the protection of civilians, and the prevention of greater humanitarian disasters will not subside. To the representative of the Russian Federation. I'm saying this not in order to shame our American colleagues. I am confident that the outcome of our vote has resounded painfully in the heart of ordinary people in the USA and the United Kingdom, whose calls for peace and common sense have gone unheeded by the ruling elites of those countries. I'm confident that they will still express their opinion. Meanwhile, Gaza's health ministry says more than 17,480 people have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. And in local news, a federal appeals court ruled Friday overturning portions of New York's gun laws, including a provision requiring concealed carry permit applicants disclose their social media accounts. The court also struck down a ban on gun possession by default on private property and in places of worship. Governor Kathy Hochul says the laws were common sense protections, adding she'll continue efforts to keep New Yorkers safe. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The war against Gaza enters its third month with no let-up in sight. The Gaza Health Ministry acknowledged civilian deaths surpassed 17,000, with Israeli forces deployed across the Gaza Strip. As many as 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million inhabitants have been forced from their homes. On Thursday, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres invoked the rarely used Article 99 of the UN Charter to call an unprecedented meeting of the Security Council, a move opposed by the United States, which has used its veto to block a vote for a permanent ceasefire. Meanwhile, 
In another Security Council, the National Security Council, spokesperson John Kirby says the United States and Israel are doing enough to aid Palestinians and there's no need for another meeting. And name another nation that is, that is doing more to urge this Israeli counterparts, our Israeli counterparts, to be as cautious and deliberate uh, as they can be in the prosecution of their military operations. You can't. The United States is at the forefront of this. Meanwhile, UN aid chief Martin Griffiths says there was hope today a second border crossing into Gaza would soon be opened. The potential deliveries of aid f by land from Jordan, which could come straight through from Jordan over the Alambri Bridge, straight to Koresh Shalom. That's one entry point to Koresh Shalom. If we get that, well, it'll be the first miracle we've seen for some weeks. Last month, the Center for Constitutional Rights brought a suit against three top U.S. officials for failure to prevent genocide in Gaza. Three Palestinian groups have brought a suit before the International Criminal Court, accusing Israeli officials of genocide as well. But Palestine's U.N. Ambassador Riyad Mansour says there's been no justice for Israel's war crimes. We do not see yet a single warrant of arrest of those who are committing these crimes, whether against children or the crime, you know, of uh, settlements, or the crime of the complete destruction and collective punishment against 2.3 million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. International law attorney Joita Siachi says she supports a new case. This time, instead of targeting individuals, the state of Israel would be in the dock of the UN's World Court. The ICJ, the International Court of Justice, is the principal judicial organ of the UN. It is unlike the ICC a dispute resolution mechanism. It is a state-centric court. It will go after the responsibility of the state of Israel under the Genocide Convention of 1948. Siachi adds the purpose of the suit is to force Israel to confront 75 years of oppressing Palestinians. What the court does is really offer a forum in which Israel will have to come and provide some explanation to why this injustice has been happening to the Palestinians since 75 years of dispossession, 56 years of entrenched military occupation, and 17 years of punishing and suffocating siege on the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, doctors for a ceasefire held a news conference. Representative Rashida Tlaib spoke. I hate giving them my tears, but I'm not crying because of them. I'm crying because our shared humanity is getting lost every single day. We do not call for a ceasefire. Tlaib was censured by the House last month for her outspoken support of Palestine. House Republicans joined by some Democrats accused Tlaib of anti-Semitism. Today, another House member, New York's Jamal Bowman, was also censured for allegedly pulling a fire alarm to delay a vote. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn fielded questions at a news conference Thursday after a hearing on alleged anti-Semitism on college campuses. And university leaders have a responsibility to make sure they're leaning in to confronting the explosion of hatred that we've seen in some instances and on some college campuses. Meanwhile, across the Capitol in the Senate chamber, Rand Paul attempted to pass a bill pulling U.S. troops out of Syria. And Senator Paul wanted to know, is the body ready to send young Americans to war? Shouldn't we as their elected representatives at least have the courage to debate the merits of sending them there? The motion was defeated. 
The yeas are 13. The nays are 84. The motion is not adopted. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And now our extended interview with international lawyer, Jaoud Siachi. The threshold to charge the crime of genocide is extremely high. You need to show first that one of the five underlying acts of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, as reprinted in Article 6 of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, have been committed, but they have been also committed with the specific intent to destroy a group of people in whole or in part. And in this particular case, we have direct evidence, but also circumstantial evidence through Israel's pattern of conduct that indicates evidence from which intent can be inferred. And that in itself is of grave concern. Israel is not a party of the state of the the statute of the International Criminal Court, but it has signed a number of international legal instruments, including and specifically the Geneva Conventions. And these are not honor codes. These are binding enforceable laws that applies to any belligerent to armed conflicts. This conflict is very different from what we have seen in the past because it is woefully deficient in any international norms. The level of impunity and mass criminality that we have seen here stand in sharp contrast with anything we have seen in this conflict. The seemingly limitless savagery of atrocity that human beings can inflict on one another. In terms of international institutions and tribunals, courts and tribunals that can pursue justice and accountability in this case, I believe that a national court of justice is best suited for pursuing justice because the state of Israel, not only the agent of the state of Israel, but the state of Israel itself must respond to the crimes that are committed here. What happens when a state is taken up on charges as opposed to individual members of that state? People tend to think of accountability in terms of individual criminal liability. The ICC action would be a good avenue to pursue. It does not, first of all, provide immediate relief to the Palestinians. It's a very lengthy process. The court, the wheels of the national justice at The Hague turns at a very leisurely pace. It takes five to ten years to issue arrest warrant, and we have seen it in many, many cases. The current prosecutor has not really taken seriously any investigation, preliminary examination investigation has involved the Palestinians. People tend to forget that it is the state of Israel responsibility that is at stake here. It would be actually more significant to bring the state of Israel to book here in terms of bringing a case before the International Court of Justice. And I believe that a fully exploited ICJ case and a legal judgment on the merit of the question of Israel's state responsibility for genocide offer a more realistic opportunity to end impunity-fueled repression against the Palestinian people. The ICJ, the National Court of Justice, is the principal judicial organ of the UN. It is, unlike the ICC a dispute resolution mechanism. It is a state-centric court. It will go after the responsibility of the state of Israel. It will adjudicate a dispute between the state of Israel and another state under 
the Genocide Convention of 1948. And what would be the end result? It is not a prosecution. It's an order, a judgment, first of all, a preliminary injunction that would be issued by the state filing the case against Israel. It would have to be a state that is party to the Genocide Convention of 1948. There has to be a basis for the existence of a dispute with the state of Israel and that state that is bringing the charges. It would be to seek preliminary judgment. It's basically immediate relief to seize genocide and to prevent evidence of the same. And then the court moves to the judgment on the merits. And once the order or the judgment is issued, it goes to the Security Council for enforcement for that order to be to be executed. Of course, you know, we're going to have a lot of problems about vetoing the order of the court. We'll have to start this process at some point. International lawyer, Shaud Siachi. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul Durienzo. The threat of an expanded conflict in the Middle East has prompted Saudi Arabia to ask the United States to show restraint in its response to attacks on shipping in the Red Sea by the Houthis, a group in control of much of Yemen. That's been accused by the United States of taking aid from Iran. Several commercial ships apparently tied to Israel were struck by Houthi missiles in the past week, and a U.S. destroyer shot down several drones that may have come from Yemen. Peace activist Kathy Kelly, a longtime advocate for peace in Yemen, says many countries are to blame. Across from Yemen is the country of Djibouti. There are six major military bases run by six different countries, just in that little thumbnail-sized countries. There's so much weaponry in the region. Every party to any kind of war-making is equally responsible right now. The Houthis say they're making the attacks to help their allies in Gaza by tying down U.S. warships in the Red Sea. And with an end-of-the-year deadline looming, the White House says without further funding, it'll run out of money to provide military support to Ukraine in its war against Russia. President Biden spoke today. Congress needs to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday resources. Simple as that. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. While Congress, Republicans in Congress are willing to give Putin the greatest gift he could hope for and abandon our global leadership. Biden says he's willing to make compromises with the GOP and ask for more money to stop an influx of refugees at the southern border. But Senator Mitch McConnell says it's not enough, and he's directed a no vote by Republicans to scuttle advancing any supplemental money for Ukraine. And I hope all of our members vote no on the motion to make the point we insist on meaningful changes to the border. Now is the time to pay attention to our own border in addition to these other important international concerns. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer called it a hijacking. If this fails because of border, that's not a bipartisan failure. That's a failure of the Republicans and the Republican leadership. The only reason they added border was because a lot of members of their hard right said they want border. But a lot of those same members aren't going to vote Ukraine no matter what is there. Meanwhile, FBI Director Chris Wray made a bid for reauthorization of a U.S. government spy tool known as Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It allows the United States to gather wiretaps and other electronic surveillance without a warrant if one of the parties to a conversation is a foreign citizen. And the law has been used for numerous so-called backdoor investigations of American citizens by the FBI. Ray defended the program today. 
And the idea that we would let an indispensable tool like that lapse or, frankly, amend it in a way that gutted its effectiveness, in my view, would be a, a grave mistake. Um, and I, I fear that we would all live to regret it. The ACLU says plan reforms to the bill don't go far enough in protecting long-established civil liberties. And Wednesday marks 61 days since Israel's war against Gaza began in retaliation to an attack by Hamas. The Israeli military says it's reached the center of the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus, while its planes continue bombing the north of the Gaza Strip. Both sides have accused the other of war crimes, with Israel and the U.S. saying Hamas fighters use rape as a weapon, while Hamas, denying the charges, accused Israel of war crimes through its bombings. More than 17,000 Gazans have died in the bombing. More than 7,500 are missing. On Tuesday, the United States House passed a resolution equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, with 14 members voting against. The resolution comes as protests against Israel have rocked the country, often led by Jewish Americans. Similar protests have spanned the globe. Zionism is the founding ideal of Israel, and its critics say to protest Zionism has nothing to do with being anti-Jewish. The author of two books on Zionism is Abba Solomon. Generally, Jewish communities have accepted support for Israel as part of Jewish identity. It's really equivalent to Jewish observance, Jewish communal activities. Any threat to Israel or Israel in conflict, questionable Israeli activities, then reflects back on this supportive community of Jews around the world. Solomon says Israel's war against Gaza is endangering Jews around the world. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And now our extended interview with Abba Solomon. The point of setting up the Jewish state was as a uh, kind of a nationalist expression and also a refuge to Jewish vulnerability in the ideology The idea was that Jews have never been securely in their own established place, and therefore they're vulnerable. What's happened is that the conduct of the state in recent years is becoming much more apparent as a danger to Jews who live in other countries. How's that? The vulnerability is generally Jewish communities have accepted support for Israel as part of Jewish identity. It's really equivalent to Jewish observance, Jewish communal activities. Any threat to Israel or Israel in conflict, questionable Israeli activities, then reflects back on this supportive community of Jews around the world. It makes more tenuous their societal place. What is Zionism? What does it mean? There's all sorts. The basic Zionist movement uh, in its modern form is dated from the design in Theodor Herzl's book, Der Judenstaat, the Zionist organization that he founded in 1896. It was the idea that a legally constituted and declared Jewish territory would transform Jewish life and culture, that it would lead to a what was called a normal life, normal national life, like the French or the Germans or anyone else who has a territory constituted as their place. And the idea was that this would transform Jewish life from something tenuous and vulnerable to something secure 
Defenders of Zionism often point to the Bible, the Old Testament. The religious dimension needs to be understood as something that was grafted onto Zionism later. The Zionist project was really was instituted and under societal pressure. It was formed by truly atheist and agnostic Jews who were looking at this as a sociological problem, not as a religious imperative. The Zionist movement accommodated religious meanings as a uh, way to get more following. It really has to simply be seen as a dispute over land and control. And how did Palestine? It wasn't necessarily... Yes, Argentina was considered, Uganda. Yes, a few places were considered. And how did it come focused on Palestine? It dovetailed with British war aims in 1917 at the point of the Balfour Declaration, where the British government, for its purposes, felt that making an alliance and making this promise to turn over Palestine for a Jewish homeland would fit in with their war aims in World War I as they were fighting the Ottoman Empire. They were promising to Jews around the world, and especially Jews in the United States, this was a method to get Jews in the U.S. and in Russia at the time in turmoil to favor the British side in World War One. And what was the attitude of the Zionists to Nazi Germany in the 1930s? There was a formalized program where Jews in Germany could emigrate, their property could be converted into assets that would go with them to Palestine, and German products could then be bought with their assets. The idea was it benefited both the Third Reich and the Zionist settlement in the 30s. It was one of the main sources of revenue in the 30s for emigration to Palestine. So how did Israel go from a socialist idea to what we have today, the Jewish state tagged as fascist? Because the general premise of the Zionist state is there must be numerical superiority of Jews. At the time of the declaration of the state in May 48, ethnic cleansing of non-Jews had already begun by Jewish militias. You could look at it and say that it had to become more and more authoritarian and racist in the sense that it valued Jewish autonomy and Jewish national existence, and that only could happen with a commanding majority. It put non-Jews in Palestine in crosshairs for moving, for involuntary uh, exile. What this all means for Gaza and the world today and what people should learn from this. The more you read of the idealism and plans in the uh, Zionist project 100 years ago, there's more tragedy that you see. In George Washington's letter to the uh, Rhode Island synagogue was that uh, Jews would be able to live in peace. The idea that the Zionist project presented was that Jews would be able to live in peace and sovereignty. But built into that was really a predictable conflict between modern ideas of democracy, where everybody who's present in a territory is a citizen of that and an important component of that country, versus a country that valorizes one identity. It was always going to lead to trouble. Abba Solomon has written two books on Zionism. 
You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced a step after warning Israel last week that President Joe Biden's administration would be taking action over the attacks. No individuals have been named, but the bans would be implemented starting today. That's according to the State Department. And the Washington Post reported in Tuesday's edition that the two-month war in Gaza by Israel has failed to achieve its objective of degrading or destroying Hamas. The Post quoted Israeli sources that no more than 5,000 Hamas fighters have been killed out of a force of 30 to 40,000. The major Hamas strongholds remain untouched and recruitment into Hamas is greater than ever, even as more than 16,000 Palestinian civilians have been killed. A spokesperson for Hamas gave a defiant speech Tuesday from Beirut. This objective did not materialize and will not be achieved as our enemy has failed in rooting us out from our land as they promised. Political science professor at San Francisco University Stephen Zunas had this to say. We've seen time and time again when countries invade neighbors in the name of counterterrorism and engage in this kind of horrific warfare where the vast majority of the casualties are civilians, it leads to the rise of even worse terrorist threats. The United States has said repeatedly it's putting pressure on Israel to cut down the civilian casualties in Gaza, but since a brief truce collapsed a few days ago, more than 1,200 more have been killed by Israeli bombing. One can only conclude that the concern expressed about civilian casualties is more for domestic political consumption in response to the widespread opposition than any genuine effort to end the slaughter. The president of the International Committee of the Red Cross says the situation in Gaza is threatening the lives of the territory's 2.8 million inhabitants who have been pushed from one part of the city to another by the relentless bombing. Besides the immediate deaths, there are already cases of dysentery that are spreading as clean water has become scarce. Kathy Kelly is a peace activist. What the healthcare professionals are telling us is that all of the conditions are present, like the preconditions for outbreaks, massive outbreaks of cholera, typhus, gastroenteritis. She says disease follows on the heels of war. This kind of silent killers can be exponentially even more threatening than the horrible bombings that we've seen in the Gaza enclave. Meanwhile, far-right figures in Israel have been declaring Palestinian children are legitimate military targets. One such leader was featured in today's Hamas news conference. Kathy Kelly says they're just children. There's no such thing as Israeli children and Hamas children or Palestinian children. They're just children. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And now our extended interview with University of San Francisco Professor of Political Science, Stephen Zunis. Strategically, everybody knew this would be a very, very difficult fight for the Israelis. Urban counterinsurgency warfare is always incredibly difficult, as the French found in Algeria, the United States found in Vietnam, and quite a few other cases, and and even more so in Gaza with their sophisticated network of, of tunnels and the like. And even putting aside, of course, the very important uh, moral and legal ramifications of Israel's assault, which uh, 80% of the casualties at least have been uh, been civilians, is that strategically, tactically, this kind of warfare you know, is not usually successful. Out of this frustration the Israelis are having in obtaining their strategic objectives, they're willing to massacre many thousands of uh, innocent civilians. 
And it's uh, striking that the uh, U.S. government, which uh, presumably knows some of these lessons from Iraq and elsewhere, is willing to, despite a little bit of finger-wagging, is quite willing to give its unconditional support for the Israeli assault. Seems to be little stomach in the United States for this kind of warfare, and yet the U.S. is pushing it. It's hurting poll numbers for the president. We can think back to Vietnam, to Iraq, and when you have the majority of Americans opposing these wars, where, again, the primary victims were civilians, but the uh, government kept on uh, prosecuting them. What's striking about this is this is not involving the uh, killing of U.S. troops. There seems to be a genuine moral outrage to the uh, killing of civilians with U.S. complicity. In many ways, it's, it's more comparable, perhaps, to uh, in Central America during the 1980s. It is definitely hurting Biden in the polls, his support among key Democratic constituents, Arab Americans, American Muslims, progressive voters, young voters, has really plummeted. Biden is really putting himself and, by extension, the nation and the world in jeopardy here by dramatically increasing the likelihood that Trump will be back in office in a little over a year because of his insistence on supporting Netanyahu's war. If you don't follow what we do, we'll send these people in and they'll beat up your demonstrators and all these kind of things. The only line of defense the Democrats have really when they're pursuing such an unpopular policy is saying, look how scary the Republicans are. And that's not an um, invalid concern, to be sure. This more simple thing would be to s simply stop supporting this unpopular uh, policy. 85% of Democrats, according to polls, support a ceasefire. Yet you have not only President Biden, but the entire Democratic congressional leadership, pretty much, and, uh, and a vast majority of uh, Democrats in Congress are refusing to support a, a ceasefire. A majority of Democrats oppose ongoing vision of uh, offensive military weaponry to Israel in light of the war crimes. And yet there again, there seems to be a huge support uh, in both Congress and the administration for this $14 billion supplemental military aid bill on top of the $3.8 billion that uh, Congress has been allocating annually. Biden and Secretary of Defense Austin and Secretary of State Blinken and Vice President Kamala Harris have all expressed concern about the high civilian death roll. But, but when you um, end up providing Hellfire missiles, bunker buster bombs, and other things to the uh, Israelis, of course they're going to use them. Indeed, the administration has pushed through emergency powers to bypass the normal congressional and public scrutiny guarding arms transfers. One can only conclude that the concern expressed about civilian casualties is more for domestic political consumption in response to the widespread opposition than any genuine effort to end the slaughter. Despite all the faith people have in Israel, its power, its glory, the money that's gone into it, are we just seeing a replay of Algeria? In many respects, we are seeing a kind of um, bloody counterinsurgency campaign, which uh, cannot defeat the resistance. And this idea that one completely destroy Hamas, I mean, obviously Hamas, you know, in my view, they're not just a uh, violent manifestation of a nationalist movement. They really are a really, really nasty, reactionary extremist threat. The only way they got that way is because the United States refused to support Palestinian moderates supporting a two-state solution, and that has led more and more people into the arms of these extremists. And in terms of physically eliminating them, I mean, when uh, Russia invaded Afghanistan to uh, defeat the Mujahideen, it led to the rise of the Taliban. 
when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982 to destroy the PLO, it led directly to the rise of Hezbollah. When the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, part of the so-called global war on terror, it led directly to the rise of ISIS. We've seen time and time again when countries invade neighbors in the name of counterterrorism and engage in this kind of horrific warfare where the vast majority of the casualties are civilians, it leads to the rise of even worse terrorist threats. Stephen Zunas is a professor of political science at the University of San Francisco. You're listening to the News Roundup on WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And now we hear an extended interview with peace activist Kathy Kelly. The World Health Organization has already uh, sounded the alarm along with a person working with UNICEF who was in a hospital at over 200% capacity where children were kind of packed together in an emergency setting. And what the healthcare professionals are telling us is that all of the conditions are present, like the preconditions for outbreaks, massive outbreaks of cholera, typhus, gastroenteritis. And what we saw, certainly in Haiti, but also in Iraq and in Yemen, is that these kind of silent killers can be exponentially even more threatening than the horrible bombings that we've seen in the Gaza enclave. And so, you know, if if the fuel is cut off as it is, if the access to hospitals is increasingly less because the hospitals themselves have been bombed or there's no ability to get inside of the hospitals. And as people are crowded, just desperately crowded into places where they're seeking refuge and they don't have places where the, you know, sewage and sanitation can be trucked out for um, cleanliness. They don't have ways to bury bodies. They don't have ways to get clean water. It's predictable that especially the vulnerable children, hungry and dehydrated, are going to sicken and possibly die. Why is this happening? We have to ask, what is the apartheid state of Israel trying to accomplish? What do you think they're trying to accomplish? We have to be aware of some of the statements that were made by people in governance in Israel after October 7th attacks by Hamas caused this tremendous retaliation. And and there were some who spoke in ways that indicated they didn't even perceive Gazans as human beings. They said, we're dealing with animals. Others said that there will be a complete elimination of Gaza. That's not been taken on board by the entire Israeli governance, and it's a good thing. The terrible thing is that public opinion within Israel now is not challenging the militarism and the onslaughts that we're seeing in the aerial assault. So have we any sense that there's going to be reparations paid so that Gazans can have livable, habitable surroundings? That's going to be incumbent on people all around the world, citizens of the world, to demand. The demonstrations are extremely important. Now you make a comparison to the situation in Yemen and how many children there died uh, from pestilence after the war That was the largest outbreak of cholera ever recorded in history. First, 85,000 children died of starvation, according to the United Nations estimates. And then with the outbreak of cholera, there were um, hundreds more that died and 2.3 million people had been affected. And it's true also that the Saudis 
bombed the sewage and sanitation facility and the electrical plant that powered that facility. And that seems to have occasioned the initial outbreak of cholera. And then it it spread far and wide. But also, Jeffrey E. Stern, writing for the New York Times Magazine in an article entitled From uh, Arizona to Arhav, The Journey of an American Bomb, he indicates that people digging wells trying to get clean water were reporting that those rigs that they had established in those digging efforts were bombed. There's a sinister intent, certainly clear, in previous wars to extract a toll from completely innocent people by assuring that what appears to me to be biological warfare is waged so severely against people that they'll give up and leave their homelands and leave their towns and their villages. So much effort goes to uh, preventing abortion to uh, save the life of the baby, and yet nobody speaks out when 10, 12, 13,000 children are killed. Paul, that's a terrible double standard. That's true. And I think we have to have a seamless approach to the value on human life and to say that the value of every human life, especially every child born into this world is equal. There's no such thing as Israeli children and Hamas children or Palestinian children. They're just children. And when those children are born into the world, they should never, ever, ever be punished for their existence. Is Yemen being backed by Iran to uh, fling uh, homemade missiles? There has been so much movement of weaponry into that part of the world that it's very hard to imagine which black market is operative and how people acquire different kinds of weapons. Uh, you know, let's let's just keep in mind that across from Yemen is the country of Djibouti. There are six major military bases run by six different countries, just in that little thumbnail size country. So there is there's so much weaponry in the region. And uh, I, I would think that every party to any kind of war making is equally responsible right now to try to rebuild Yemen and end this terrible war. Peace activist, Kathy Kelly. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul Durienzo. The Department of Justice announced the arrest of a top United States diplomat in what's being called the longest-running infiltration by a spy in United States history. He allegedly spied for the government of Cuba. Attorney General Merrick Garland made the announcement. The department has charged former U.S. Ambassador to Bolivia, Victor Manuel Rocha, with illegally acting as an agent of a foreign government. This action exposes one of the highest-reaching and longest-lasting infiltrations of the U.S. government by a foreign agent. Rocha worked for the State Department from 1981 to 2002. He was on the National Security Council from 1994 to 1995 and was an advisor to the U.S. Military Southern Command from around 2006 to 2012. The complaint alleges that Rocha sought out and used his positions within the United States government to support Cuba's clandestine intelligence gathering mission against the United States. The government claims Rocha admitted to an undercover FBI agent over the past year that he spied for Cuba. Rocha was expected to appear in court on Monday. And on Monday, the Israeli military said it killed a top Hamas commander in an airstrike on a refugee camp outside of Gaza City. 
Meanwhile, the Palestinian Red Crescent reported one of its volunteers were killed in northern Gaza, while CNN reported that nine members of the family of its producer, Ibrahim Rahman, were killed in an Israeli airstrike on Sunday. About 60 journalists have been killed since the war broke out on October 7th. It's about the same number of journalists killed during the entire Vietnam War. Hamas on Monday dismissed allegations by Israel and the United States that its fighters raped women during its attack on Israel. In a news release, the group says the allegations were a desperate attempt to distort what Hamas claims is the group's humane treatment of Israeli hostages. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan blamed the recent outbreak of hostilities on Hamas's refusal to release those women hostages. Right now, Hamas is refusing to release civilian women who should have been part of the agreement. And it is that refusal by Hamas that has caused uh, the end of the hostage agreement and therefore the end of the pause in hostilities. While State Department spokesperson Matt Miller says women hostages aren't being freed by Hamas because they were raped. One of the reasons they don't want to turn women over that they've been holding hostage and the reason this pause fell apart is they don't want those women to be able to talk about what happened to them during their time in custody. Certainly there is very uh, little that I would put beyond Hamas. But Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, says Israel is the real war criminal and the rape allegations are a fraud. To address the sense of trauma and insecurity of the Israeli public, Israel's waged an international psychological warfare operation through the media, leveraging any possible claim that they can make stick about Hamas atrocities in order to make it seem like Hamas burned babies in ovens, uh, gang-raped women on video. Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone. According to the Gaza Ministry of Health, the death toll since October stands at more than 15,200 Palestinians killed, including 6,150 children and 40,752 wounded in the Gaza Strip. 256 Palestinians have been killed in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem. And now our extended interview with Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone. Well, we don't know what really happened on October 7th. Israel has just destroyed video evidence of uh, infiltrations of the multi-billion dollar fence that surrounds the Gaza Strip. So the only images or video we have of that comes from Hamas commando teams themselves. We know that Hamas staged a daring and brazen attack on Israeli military bases and communities and that some... Four to 500 Israeli armed personnel in, from the Gaza division enforcing the siege of Gaza and police were killed along with many civilians. We know that Hamas and people who flowed in after the fences were broken through, who included just common citizens from the Gaza Strip, killed some Israeli citizens and did so deliberately. But we also know that the main objective of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which followed behind them, was to take captives. They had a political objective. It was to shatter the Israel's sense of impunity and also to gain as much leverage as possible in order to get their own prisoners, their own captives out, and to establish terms for the relaxation of the siege of Gaza. This is the only diplomatic leverage they had. And that was what October 7th was about. But in its aftermath, Israel waged what is obviously a genocidal war on the Gaza Strip. I mean, as over 700 people have been killed in Gaza in the last 24 hours. It's the worst atrocity I've ever witnessed in my life. And to distract from that and justify it 
and also to address the sense of trauma and insecurity of the Israeli public, Israel's waged an international psychological warfare operation through the media, leveraging any possible claim that they can make stick about Hamas atrocities in order to make it seem like Hamas burned babies in ovens, children in the head and, and raped women in large groups, gang raped women on video. There was a session at the UN with Hillary Clinton, the tech oligarch Sheryl Sandberg, alleging that all this mass rape took place in order to justify what Israel's doing in Gaza. We're not going to know what happened on October 7th. Now it's just a battle of narratives, and it's important to really flesh out the fact. Mm. The way we've been able to do that at the gray zone is by actually examining the lies, and what we've actually turned up is something extremely disturbing. Many friendly fire deaths occurred on October 7th. Explain that. Israel has marketed photos showing burned bodies in melted cars, burned corpses, which are telltale signs of victims of the Israeli arsenal of heavy weapons. Hamas commandos had small arms, Kalashnikovs, and a few of them had RPGs. They had nothing that could have caused destruction, and specifically the level of charring of human bodies and the full-scale destruction, melting of vehicles, melting of steel vehicles, the way that a Hellfire missile fired by an Israeli Apache helicopter could. I examined testimony by Israeli Apache helicopter pilots who were operating in the so-called Gaza envelope of southern Israel, who said they had no intelligence on the ground, had no way of distinguishing between civilian and combatant, and that they had to just empty the tank of their ammunition. Um, and they were hitting cars blowing back into Gaza and cars coming in, cars which could have contained captives or cars which could have been belonged to Israelis fleeing the Nova Electronic Music Festival. They don't know. They've admitted now that 200 of those who they said were among the supposed 1,400 dead were actually Hamas militants that were killed with tank shells and other forms of heavy weapons. Those tank shells, first of all, were fired on Israeli homes in which Hamas gunmen had taken captives and they were and they were fired with the understanding that Israeli civilians would be killed. One of the children that Israel has used as a poster child for its global PR campaign against Hamas, Lael Hetzroni, she, it's a 12-year-old girl, her twin brother and her great aunt and everyone else that was taking shelter in a house was killed by an Israeli tank after the tank gunner was told that there were Israelis inside because they wanted to kill the Hamas militants that were holding captives rather than negotiate an end to the standoff. These orders came down from the Israeli military high command, according to a security coordinator from Kibbutz Berry, where over 100 people were killed. This was reported in Haaretz, that they were ordered to fire tank shells on homes even if Israeli occupants were inside. So we don't know how many Israelis were killed by friendly fire on October 7th, but I think many of them were. And you take a look at the, just look at the photos that are being distributed by the Israeli government of the homes in the kibbutzim. They've been reduced to rubble. What did Hamas have in its arsenal that could reduce an entire home to rubble? Those look like the homes I've seen in the Gaza Strip that were hit by Israeli tank shells and artillery. And we know that the tanks were shelling these homes in Kafar Aza, in Kibbutz Berry, and in other communities. We even have a Channel 13 Israeli special on the female tank heroes of October 7th, and they're boasting about uh, firing on homes with the tank machine guns and being ordered to shell the homes. We're just supposed to 
shrug and or say that that was legitimate conduct, independent investigation, which seems far away right now, is going to confirm much mm-hmm. of the reporting we've been And in local news, congestion pricing is coming to Lower Manhattan, an extra toll on vehicles that use streets that have been congested by traffic for decades. Cameras would snap pictures of license plate numbers and send a bill of about $15 for motorists. Certain roads would remain free, including the FDR and Westside Drive. East River Bridges would also remain free. The plan is meant to raise more than $1 billion for the city's transit system, but some advocates say congestion pricing will actually bring more air pollution to some of the poorest parts of Lower Manhattan. Former Lower Manhattan Council member Catherine Freeze says it's a one-two punch since demolition began on East River Park for a flood control project last year. The one area that's really getting screwed on congestion pricing is us. We're getting higher pollution and higher congestion, and we're still getting higher prices. Most people here can't afford it. Everyone thinks, oh, everyone who lives in Manhattan is rich. Uh-uh, not true. Freed adds the Lower East Side is some of the worst asthma conditions in the city, and more traffic will make it worse. We had pollution and congestion, the resulting health problems because of it. Now we're getting the dust from the park, or what used to be a park, and now we're going to get on top of that even more congestion, and we're the one area where the rest of the central business district hopefully will go down with pollution and cars. Ours are going to go up. Every one of those East River bridges, basically like the Williamsburg and Manhattan, if you're going to use it, you have to go on local street. Paul DiRienzo, New York. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Mayor Eric Adams' 5% budget cuts are snuffing out the burgeoning movement to compost organic waste. That creates community while removing tons of garbage from the city's waste stream. Rebecca Miles has the story. People associated with ecology groups like Grow, NYC, BK Rot, Big Reuse, Lower East Side Ecology Center and Earth Matter rallied in City Hall Park to protest Mayor Adams' plan to cut the city's composting program. The cuts threaten 115 jobs as well as eliminating the much-valued composting and ecology programs. Attendees were asked why they compost. To reduce waste from the landfill. Because we're spending several hundred million dollars every year sending valuable food scraps to landfills and incinerators that are polluting our neighborhoods. In September, the mayor ordered all city agencies to slash their spending by 5%, with additional cuts likely in January. The current budget is at $107 billion. Under this plan, there are proposed cuts to libraries, summer school programs, K3, and police hirings, as well as cuts to the city's community compost program. The proposed cuts would reduce litter cleanup, shutter farmers' markets, food waste drop-off sites, and end funding for several mid-sized community composting sites. City lawmakers who supported the Zero Waste Act and activists are fighting back. They will be at City Hall Park again on December the 6th at 12 noon, and if listeners are interested in signing the petition, it can be found on the Grow NYC website. Rebecca Miles, WBAI Evening News, New York. Paul DiRienzo, New York. And this has been your News Roundup. I'm Paul DiRienzo, New York.